to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD Radio News Director Will Stevenson. As this program was airing last week, Russia was in the middle of a failed insurrection attempt. The leader of the so-called Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, led sort of an invasion into Russia, but retreated instead of moving into the Russian capital of Moscow. WMBD's Dan DiOrio talked with Angela Weck, who teaches Russian history at Bradley University, about what all that means. Weck, by the way, is also the executive director of the Peoria Area World Affairs Council. You've had a couple of days to kind of process what happened. Uh, Does any of it make sense, or do you have as many questions as I do? Well, I think everybody has a lot of questions. Um, One thing I think is important to keep in mind, though, is that the United States needs to stay out of it, only because if we poke our nose in in any way, Putin's going to use that as a PR campaign that, see, all of this was done by the United States. Um, But, and, and, you know, so that's the only thing that I know that I can say for sure is we need to stay out of it. (laughs) But other than that, um, I think there are, some, some odd questions and, and comparisons that can be made to the past. And somebody drew the attention to Pugachev, who was uh, a Cossack from the western Ukrainian region, <laughs> and um, a Don Cossack, which is Rostov on Don, is where Prigozhin took over the military base and then launched his caravan toward Moscow. Um, so, so there's some parallels being drawn. But in the time of Pugachev, he was very frustrated with Catherine the Great. The Cossacks were essentially leading the border uh, security for Russia. They were complaining they were not getting enough help. They were not getting enough support from the Russian troops themselves. They were not getting enough um, food and, and payment for their Cossack troops against the Crimean Tatars and against the Poles and Lithuanians. And so he was prompted by friends in high places um, who convinced him that he could roll on Moscow and take over the system. And so, you know, the parallels are just too clear. (laughs) People from this part of Russia, you know, and parts of Ukraine have wanted independence from Russia or recognition of their real value from Moscow for centuries and so you know putin is is they're calling it the pugachovchina which is you know the the ill-fated plan to take over the government by pugachov this is what pergosian and his wagner group did well the only difference is compared to angela the the only difference is one is in exile in uh, belarus the other was hung from a lamppost some stories say he was hung from lamppost. Others say he was arrested, drawn and quartered, and his parts distributed to the four corners of Catherine the Great's realm so that nobody ever tried to rebel again. And, in fact, nobody did during Catherine the Great's reign. Mm-hmm. So either way, he's out of the picture. Well, um, and, it, and it kind of is that way with Putin. Uh, you know, a tiger doesn't change his stripes. He had somebody poisoned with polonium-235 in London. Oligarchs who left and went to the Mediterranean 
or wherever disappeared, taken to the train station, pushed out of windows. Anyone inside of Russia who has gone against him has fallen out of windows. Yet, and he said publicly, he thanks his soldiers, his army, for stopping a civil war. Yet, does he not look weak by not going after and fully punishing Prigozhin? I think you're right, and there are a lot of analysts who are saying this is the beginning of Putin's end. I think that's a little premature. I, I, there's two ways to look at Prigozhin's exit to Belarus. Number one, I don't think that if, in fact, Putin believes he was the mastermind of this potential civil war, I don't think he has long to, to breathe. But number two, Lukashenko in Belarus has been on the sidelines of this war in Ukraine for some time. Putin now has placed tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus, and Lukashenko's the one who took the publicity and made all the big announcements about it, not Putin. I'm a little bit suspicious that Lukashenko was allowed to welcome Prigozhin if there's not some kind of an ulterior motive for Belarus to take a more interesting role in Ukraine with the help of Prigozhin, because it's not just Prigozhin. Some of his top leaders and others from the Wagner group also all went to Belarus. You know, and it's interesting you say that, because in the news today, uh, the the, uh, president of Belarus, Lukashenko, is saying, no, no, there are no Wagner camps being built here. So he's kind of publicly trying to deny that. But there's already Russian troop camps that are built there, because some of the troops that invaded back in February of 2022 came from Belarus. They used bases in Belarus. And Belarus and Russia have a strong military alliance already. So they don't have to build new ones. If, so he can, you know, it's plausible deniability, right? We're not building new bases because they already have them. Do you think allowing um, Prigozhin to go to Belarus in a way uh, is a way for Putin to say, well, he's not our problem. He's in Belarus, and so he can kind of wash his hands of the situation. I mean, he knows him personally. They grew up together in Leningrad. They, they, uh, uh, they have had a close relationship. So, and, 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 of course, Putin loves his loyalty um, and will punish anyone who's not loyal. I, I still can't figure out logically how he is handling handling this, why he hasn't done anything with Prigozhin, maybe just getting him in Belarus and out of the public eye for now, maybe his only way out. And you're probably right there. So I think he also, Putin, also has to weigh how much support the Wagner group had in Rostov and in those those really tense areas so close to the Ukrainian border, because if enough regular citizens would have joined the, the, you know, the protest movement, as it's being called now, um, that would have been truly a civil war. Um, but, you know, getting him out of the picture will cool the publicity around Prigozhin for Putin in Russia, 
and then he can quietly figure out a way how to deal with him more permanently later. Yeah, but you're right. As, Hotels without windows is important. <laughs> more of Dan DiOrio's conversation with Bradley University professor Angela Weck about the situation in Russia when Week in Review continues. We'll move on to Congressman Darren LaHood and something he was talking about recently in Peoria in just a few minutes. But first, we need to conclude a conversation from WMBD's Dan DiOrio. Dan talked with Angela Weck, a Russian history professor at Bradley University and also executive director of the Peoria Area World Affairs Council, discussing the aftermath of the failed insurrection attempt by the Wagner Group and its leader Yevgeny Prigozhin in Russia. Here's the final part of that conversation. What I find very interesting is... uh Prigozhin was critical of the war. A, he wasn't getting enough support, but he wants the war to... This is coming from someone who's very barbaric in war, wants to increase the threat, increase the weaponry that's happening inside Ukraine. And so far, we talked about this. Putin, although he has had drone strikes on civilian targets and hospitals... There is much more advanced weaponry just sitting on the sidelines in Russia that he has yet to put in. Uh, what what has uh, besides tactical nuclear weapons? Doesn't he have advanced aircraft and even more advanced missiles that he hasn't even used yet? He's been using some of those, and in fact, the Ukrainians have found that the, the hypersonic missiles that he's fired are the ones that have been successful. I think of all, it, he doesn't have a ton because they're very expensive and they're relative, relatively new technology. So he's got to have time to produce or mass produce a number of those missiles. But the the Ukrainians have noted that, especially the ones that get through um, the defense systems supplied to them by the United States and others, um, are those hypersonic missiles. And they are the most devastating because they can carry such a huge destructive, you know, Payload. They're like a cluster bomb and, and, mm-hmm. and major bombs combined. So, um, so yeah, they're really awful. And it's also clear that Putin considers virtually any infrastructure to be part of Ukraine's war program. So apartment buildings, grocery stores, schools and hospitals are all fair game for Putin because, you know, Somebody, some soldier might be there. So, um, so he's he's bent on destroying Ukraine. But you pointed out something when you this second comment that you made about Prigozhin and his own personal goals in Ukraine. There's some reason that he wanted so badly to take Bakhmut. He is one of the oligarchs in Putin's inner circle, and there's a huge mine around that region in Bakhmut that was promised to Prigozhin if he could claim it. And he fully planned to benefit from the war, just like the other oligarchs are benefiting. The fact that he didn't get a free hand and all of the ammunition and allowance to take as many, you know, barbaric tactics as he wanted to take is what frustrated him. So, you know, it's not that he's fighting Nazis. It's that he's not getting the spoils that he was expecting to get. You know, that's very interesting. I didn't know about the mine. And uh, uh, Putin and the Russian defense ministry said, 
oh, no, the Wagner groups are staying in Africa because that's why they're there in Africa. They're going after gold mines and precious metals, and they've been very effective in Africa about securing those gold mines and all that. So uh, that makes sense. That's pretty consistent about all of that. And who knows, maybe maybe if things calm down, Maybe quietly, Prigozhin will be back in Africa conducting operations down there. Because this was the first time, and you brought this up, he was actually this close, operating on or very close to Russian soil. He's always done the dirty work away from Russia. Maybe after some time, Putin will just send him back down to Africa out of sight. Uh, because that was their original mission to go after mines and precious metals in Africa. That's very interesting. All right, that's Angela Wacka. We'll continue to be in touch if anything develops right now. There's a lot of questions. Some people say it's far from over, but we'll talk again in the future. That's Angela Weck, our Russian expert from Bradley University. WMBD's Dan DiOriel with... Peoria Area World Affairs Council Executive Director Angela Weck. Earlier this week, Congressman Darren LaHood was in Peoria helping to announce an initiative for a new community wellness center in the Elmwood area that will serve some residents from a four-county area that are primarily rural, starting with rural Peoria County. Congressman LaHood helped them out, and we'll hear about that in just a moment. But first... WMBD's Dan DiOrio had to talk to Congressman LaHood about his no vote on expanding the debt ceiling and approving the federal budget. The Congressional, uh, Congressional Budget Office uh, came out and said uh, that within 30 years, the way our uh, deficit is spiraling, it'll be like 181% of our economy. I know you were the uh, you voted against the debt ceiling deal, and I'm like I supported those who voted for it. I supported those who uh, voted against it because we have to get serious about this debt. And of all the Republican candidates running around right now, Trump's the only one talking about the economy. I'm looking for a presidential, Republican presidential candidate that puts the economy first and foremost, puts the deficit and how we how we take care of government and spending. Are you looking for that, too? I am, Dan. Uh, you know, frankly, when you look at the fact we're thirty two trillion dollars in debt in this country uh, and there's no real plan uh, in place to how you fix that. I mean, we're going to go off the fiscal cliff. Um, and as you know, Social Security is going to run out of money in less than 10 years now. And yet, when you listen to the presidential candidates or listen to others, uh, no one mentions it or talks about it. But that's part of the reason why I voted against the debt ceiling bill. I mean, I read that bill. I looked at it. But in the end, um, it didn't do what we need to do in terms of getting our federal budget uh, and our spending under control. And, and this is a, a problem shared by both Republicans and Democrats. And if you go back, when President Obama got elected in 2008, our deficit was roughly at $8 trillion. Today it's been $32 trillion. So Republicans and Democrats, we spent $7 trillion under the Trump administration that we didn't pay for any of that money for, for COVID-related relief. Probably half of that we, we shouldn't have spent. So my point is we just have this appetite for spending. We can't control it. Uh, and until we have a serious conversation about the 70% of the budget that is mandatory spending on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, we're never going to solve this issue, and it has to be bipartisan. Well, one sensitive issue that neither side wants to touch, uh, especially Republicans, there was an expose on 60 Minutes 
by a whistleblower, and this is one of this goes back decades to the four hundred dollar hammer, saying that look, the same part that NASA pays a hundred dollars for, our military pays five hundred dollars more. Even Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, and I give him credit for this when they talked about the military budget, he goes, "Hey, we need efficiency there. Uh, we need to look at the military and say, get your act together. These procurements, this goes back decades, Darren." overcharging for parts are we ever going to like we do with the rest of government hold the military accountable for their spending well i watched that same 60 minutes um uh story and it's infuriating as a federal taxpayer to see that happening so um in this year's ndaa the national defense authorization act republicans have put in a new procurement process to make sure that that doesn't happen that we're we're watching and monitoring every nickel and dime that's spent and making sure that outside companies aren't gouging the federal government for that it's simply unacceptable that's a small piece of what uh, you know we need to look at in terms of how do you make government more efficient effective and accountable uh to the american people but there is lots of when people talk about well where's their waste fraud and abuse that's a good example of where people are taking advantage of the federal government on that and so uh, you know, we as Republicans being in charge of the House now, uh, it will be a priority as we go into the next budget cycle here. Well, I'll tell you this as we wrap it up. I was watching Cudlow on Fox, and he had Rand Paul on the steps of the Capitol. And Rand was going into a meeting 10 days ago to work on the budget and budget cuts. You know, Jamie Dimon had talked about running the head of J.P. Morgan. He says, get rid of these debt ceiling talks every two years. It's, it, it should be our focus no matter what. And Rand Paul, I know, is is right now taking it seriously. Okay, the debt ceiling passed, but what can we do now? Why wait? So I'm glad hopefully you and on the House side and other Republicans on the Senate side aren't waiting for the next year and a half, two years to talk about this. It starts now. we got to talk about this, Darren. Congressman Darren LaHood again with WMBD's Dan DiOrio. Congressman LaHood helped out an organization that wants to build a health and wellness facility in Elmwood. We'll talk about that when Week in Review continues. A rural community in Peoria County, along with some surrounding it, are one step closer to having a community wellness and health center all of their own. And a ceremony announcing that was held this week. My name's Andy Thornton. I am the uh, president and CEO of the Greater Peoria Family YMCA. And I've been asked to kind of emcee today's event, and we're certainly thankful for such a great turnout today for you to come and learn a little bit more about what we're calling... Uh, Rural Wellness Center and YMCA project. Um, been a, a labor of love for quite so many years, and we're excited to be here today just to share with you a little bit about what we've been doing over the last seven, eight years, I think it's been, since the Community Foundation started this vision and what's going to happen here next moving forward to bring this thing to life. So, what if, what if you could visit a vibrant state-of-the-art facility where hundreds of people gather alongside neighbors every single day where you can take your kids to learn how to swim where you can choose from dozens of exercise classes or work out on the latest fitness equipment and host community events or private gatherings and an accommodating central space what if there was a place where seniors gather daily to socialize and interact 
where hospital patients rehabilitate after a recent surgical procedure, where kids and teens play basketball, soccer, volleyball, and flag football, where school-age kids receive tutoring, and where parents can send their kids over the summer to day camps and sport camps, what if we had an amenity that engages our neighbors, attracts families and residents to move to our communities, and appeals to businesses to relocate to our region and thrive? What if I told you that place was possible right here where we stand today? For the last eight plus years, the Elmwood Community Foundation's had a vision. And I'm excited to have you all here today to learn a little bit more about that and who's all involved. But before we do, in the spirit of the YMCA, I would like to open us up with a word of prayer. So if you will join me in a posture of prayer, I'd appreciate that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather today to celebrate our success with this significant collaboration. The Elmwood Community Foundation should be commended for the tireless efforts of their volunteers. They are the reason we are standing here today, marking this important occasion. We are thankful for their leadership and ask for your blessing to see their vision fulfilled. Thank you for the leadership of Graham Health System and the YMCA and the recognition of our work and commitments of support from Congressman LaHood and our partners with the federal government. We ask for your continued guidance and blessings as we continue to press forward to bring this project to life in the coming weeks and months. Guide our path and keep us focused on the main priority, which is to serve the needs of all the families in our designated service area, touching several rural communities across the Tri-County area of Peoria, Knox, and Fulton counties. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So first, I'm going to call up Tony Hart, who is the board chairman for the Elmwood Community Foundation, to talk a little bit about how we got here today. As Andy said, it has been uh, several years in the works. Uh, it started off, the Elmwood Community Foundation began talking to some of our neighboring communities about different needs. Uh, we talked with many individuals in surrounding communities, and two issues emerged uh, because no single community had the resources to deal with them. And they were more convenient access to health care and access to physical fitness. So we decided to take a look at physical fitness and how we could enhance those services. We visited many small towns with YMCAs, and that was really our first exposure to uh, the many services that the Y offers. And after we were encouraged to visit the Hopedale Wellness Center by Darren LaHood, uh, we shifted our focus uh, to the idea of incorporating healthcare and physical fitness in a single facility. We eventually found ourselves uh, meeting with Graham Medical Group and, and Bob Seneff, and a partnership was quickly formed. A few months later, we met with Andy and the Y, and he joined in on our partnership. After that, our project took on a more formal approach, utilizing the WISE methods. We com completed surveys, feasibility studies, and met with more community leaders, methodically checking boxes along the way to ensure that our project was feasible and sustainable. 
And now, we find ourselves at the next box to check off on our journey, fundraising. We are still very early in our campaign, but today's announcement is a great kickstarter to that. As you can see in the campaign material, we have established a great group to lead the campaign. And we've named Carl Taylor as an honorary co-chair for the campaign. Carl was one of the first individuals on the foundation board to really push this idea. And without his determination and leadership many years back, we would not have been able to continue on and the project might not have never happened. So the foundation board greatly appreciates our partners, Graham and the Y, Bob and Andy, and also the help and advice for many other individuals we've received along the way. Next, I want to call up Bob Seneff. Bob is the president and CEO of Graham Health Systems based out of Canton and who owns and operates this clinic right here next door. So, Bob. Thanks, Andy. I've got a number of people to thank and then we'll just a, a couple of brief comments, but Congressman LaHood, Congresswoman Bustos have been tremendous in, in bringing the dollars to back to the district and it, it, uh, opening up this field of dreams, so to speak, so that we can continue to pursue this. The, obviously, the foundation board here in the community with Tony's leadership, Carl, a lot of nights that Carl and I spent at Subway over sandwiches before meetings talking strategy, so I'll never forget that, Carl. And he's always been kind of the energizer bunny behind all this to make sure we got to the meetings and we were productive. And so that's very appreciated, Carl, from, from, from deep in my heart. I, I think the world of you. Uh, the Greater Peoria Y, the, the board there, and, and uh, Andy's leadership, and a couple of people, really Dick Taylor and Andy Thornton have been key. We, we are a three-legged stool, so to speak. We go out and do this a lot to small groups, but the character of these two really makes this something you just can't let not happen. Two great individuals who have a passion to, to get this done, and I'm just, I'm just honored and blessed to be part of that, part of that uh, trio, so to speak. Our health system board, the, our health system in Canton has been behind this all the way. We're up now to about 800 employees. We're in nine different regions. We're growing very nicely. Our clinic volumes, the clinic you see here, literally 6,000 people have been through the front door, 6,000 different people producing over 10,000 visits since we've opened from 200 zip, different zip codes. So if someone would have bet me money that since opening this clinic, you would see more than 200 di different zip codes represented, I would have lost that bet because I didn't think that we were gonna have that kind of draw. That speaks volumes about the what we're talking about today in terms of a regional endeavor and being able to capture folks from not the city of Elmwood uh, individually, but from all over the region. So we, we feel really good about that. And then just to close, this is really more about, not about an investment if you're writing a check, it's more about the quality of life and what do you want for yourself or your parents or your kids or your grandkids? This is something that's gonna benefit this entire region and, and we're just proud as Graham to be part of it and proud to be associated with people like Dick and Andy and the Y and the Elmwood Community Foundation. So from that perspective, we're, we're blessed and we thank you. So now I wanna talk a little bit about the Y's involvement. As the leader of the organization, I think it's important for us to speak a little bit about what, what, what will this look like, right? We know it's a building, we know that it's a lot of space, but what happens when we have a space like this and how does it interact with the community and serve the needs? So I've prepared some words to help guide us through that. The Greater Peoria Family YMCA is both excited and proud to be a part of this collaboration as the operating partner 
for this facility. We've been involved in the effort to bring this wellness center to life for nearly six years and see it as a great opportunity to serve the needs of the region. A few years ago, our board of directors, of which we have a few of them in the room, so let's stop for a minute and just recognize them. Raise your hand if you're on the YMCA board or YMCA staff person. So kind of dominating this section over here, but we appreciate their leadership and their support of this. But a few years ago, our board of directors approved a new strategic plan. And one of the most significant strategies in that plan was for our services at the Y to be made more readily available across the region. We do a pretty good job in Peoria, especially on the north end where we're physically located, but we've always had a plan to reach out across the Tri-County region and even a little farther than that as we are here today. Along with that, we understand the importance of approaching our work through strategic collaboration. And this partnership exemplifies that vision and commitment for us. We are thankful for the leadership of the Elmwood Community Foundation and Graham Health Systems and know that the sustainability of this project is sound because of the shared commitment by all three entities. While the planning efforts have been happening for quite some time, it's exciting to be here today to share our vision, our success to date, and the plans to reach the finish line in the coming months. When we finally do get to open the doors for business, you will be able to experience a vibrant, inclusive community center whose operations are designed to serve all the residents and their families across several rural communities that surround Elmwood. The location of this facility is well positioned to be convenient for more than 7,000 households and 18,000 people. More Week in Review coming up. Something officially began this week in Illinois that perhaps some officials thought might never get here. The beginning of what at least the state of Illinois considers to be high-speed rail. The Amtrak-Lincoln service route between Chicago and St. Louis, which stops in Bloomington Normal every day and for which Peorians go to in order to get the train to Chicago or St. Louis, can officially now travel 110 miles per hour from start to finish, thanks to track work and other efforts that have been made over the years to make the high-speed rail system happen. You will hear very briefly from Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, who helped celebrate the start at Chicago Union Station earlier this week, but I wanted to focus on the two Peorians that are helping to make this happen. You'll hear first from Illinois Department of Transportation Secretary Omer Osman, a Peoria resident, and former Transportation Secretary and former Illinois Congressman Ray LaHood. First, here's Omer Osman. What a historic day for Chicago and Illinois, as well as the entire Midwest. I'm Illinois Transportation Secretary Omer Osman. I was actually told this event was going to be huge, so I'm glad we are able to get one of the biggest spaces in downtown Chicago here at Union Station. Thank you to our partner at Amtrak for hosting us in this beautiful facility. I am so pleased that we are able to get members of the Congressional Delegation, the Federal Railroad Administration, the Union Pacific, the city, the county, and many other project supporters, including right here my good friend, former Secretary Ray LaHood, all in one spot to commemorate this occasion, the first day of the 110-mile-per-hour surface between Chicago and St. Louis. This was one of the most challenging, complex projects ever 
undertaken at the Illinois Department of Transportation. But today, all the hard work and patience pays off. The concept of a high-speed line across Illinois goes back decades, with the work actually starting almost 13 years ago. At this point, I would like to give a huge shout-out to the IDOT team, the FRA team, and a lot, of, a lot of them are here for their endurance and for their tenacity and for making sure that this project comes to fruition. I'm so proud to say it is being delivered under the leadership of this one governor who knows that an investment in transportation is an investment in people. Governor J.B. Prisker. I'm very proud to turn it over to uh, a longtime champion for Illinois and for high-speed rail and a friend, our former United States Secretary of Transportation, Ray LaHood. I, I am delighted to have been uh, considered uh, to be a part of this uh, by the governor and his staff. And I just, uh, the part I want to play here is to go back and retrace just for a moment uh, the history of uh, this investment. When we came into the job of DOT secretary under President Obama uh, in 09, President Obama, Vice President Biden, and then Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel put $8 billion in the economic stimulus bill, which was $870 billion. And that $8 billion was 8 billion times more that had ever been invested in rail in the United States because of President Obama's vision for implementing rail in America and improving rail uh, in America. And also, it didn't hurt that his vice president got up every day in Wilmington and rode the train to the United States Senate and back home that night. These, these were the rail men of, uh, of our generation. They were the visionaries. And if it hadn't been for that $8 billion, we wouldn't be standing here today because that's the money that then we allocated uh, to come to this project that will deliver thousands and thousands of students to universities all across uh, central and southern Illinois and deliver people uh, from St. Louis uh, all the way uh, to Chicago. Uh, this is an important project uh, because one of the visions that President Obama, Vice President Biden, uh, and all of us had was to speed up the train. And that, that's really what these investments uh, are allowing us to do. We couldn't have done it without Union Pacific, who really uh, controls the, the rails. And uh, they, we worked with them. Uh, we reached agreements. And then also... Uh, our friends at Amtrak, who deliver the service uh, every day uh, to so many people. Uh, we all know that Illinois is a, a railroad-centric state, maybe more than any other state uh, in the country. And this is a capstone now for passenger service uh, for people uh, from northern uh, to southern Illinois and southern Illinois to northern Illinois. The other person who had a great vision uh, is Governor Quinn. He and I worked very closely on this. He really wanted to make sure that Illinois was getting its fair share 
of real dollars. And we worked very closely with Governor Quinn and his staff, and he deserves an awful lot of credit, too, uh, for his, his vision uh, for rail. Uh, I, I want to say a, a word about um, the vision that I think uh, Governor Pritzker has had for transportation. I, I know a little bit about transportation, and I know if you don't have the leadership at the top, the way we had the leadership at the top with President Obama, Vice President Biden, when it comes to, to rail in America, we've had the, the leadership at the top, and it's been bipartisan. When that transportation bill was passed and the gas tax had to be raised, it was Governor Pritzker's leadership. And I'm very proud, too, that some Republicans in the General Assembly voted for that bill. And I'm proud of the fact that Governor Pritzker knew that he could pass that bill with Democratic votes only, but he knew that transportation is bipartisan, always has been. There are no Republican or Democratic bridges. There are no Democratic or, or, or Republican roads. Transportation is bipartisan. Governor Pritzker, thank you for your leadership, not only in this, in seeing this finished, but in all of your leadership around Illinois on improving transportation. It's a win-win for our citizens, uh, for the state of Illinois, and certainly uh, for our country. And finally, our equally great partner in all of this on transportation was Senator Durbin. He and I, when I was in the delegation, worked very closely together on a great project uh, in Springfield uh, and many other projects. And he was at the forefront of making sure that when the two, the, now this is really ancient history, two Republican governors turned down the money for high-speed rail, one in Florida and one in Wisconsin, and I say stupidly they turned it down, Senator Durbin, one of the first people on the phone, how do we get that money in Illinois? Well, we get it in Illinois with the kind of leadership we have in Illinois. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest Communications Station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. You don't have to wait for Week in Review to get the lowdown on what's happening in central Illinois. For instant news 24-7, follow us at 1470WMBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and at WMBDRadio.com. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD Radio News.